Welcome to the program, ladies and gentlemen. I want to thank you for joining me and Jim once again as we continue our series on spiritual warfare. Jim Osman is the pastor, our teaching elder at Kootenai Community Church, and he has written a book entitled Truth or Territory, A Biblical Approach to Spiritual Warfare. So, Jim, once again, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me back. You're a glutton for punishment. <laughs> Hardly. I, I tell you, I'm, I'm really, um, I've told you before off the air that I'm, I'm really, really excited about this series, and I, I think our listeners surely are, are enjoying it. Um, Jim? The hate mail will bear that out. What's that? The hate mail you receive will yeah, bear exactly. that out, whether that's true or false. Yeah. Well, woe to you when all men speak well of you. <laughs> there you so go. Hopefully. Something to look forward we'll to. <laughs> hopefully we'll get a little hate mail. But, um, okay, last week we we started getting into what I would say is probably the most widely held misconception about spiritual warfare. One, certainly, I would say in the top, one of the top three, and that is binding Satan. We talked about that last week. So just give us a little bit of a, a recap before we get into this week's program. Uh, in, which, in which we will be talking about rebuking Satan. Yeah, these these two are related in that they both seem to think, uh, seem to assume that uh, we are affecting something in the heavenlies, in the spiritual realm, simply by the power of our spoken word through some prayer mantra that we say or some series of words that we do. Um, the first, binding Satan, I bind you, Satan, or I bind the devil, uh, this is promoted as a means by which we are to, uh, in some way, uh, hinder Satan's ability, his power, uh, diminish his influence in some way, uh, just by simply binding him. And, and you know, you ask somebody, what, what does it mean to bind him? And, and that's all they can give. It's not that his hands are tied or there's chains in the spiritual armor, but that uh, his influence is somehow restricted, that we're, that we're keeping him from deceiving people and keeping him from doing things by simply uttering that phrase, I bind you. And it's based upon Matthew, a passage in Matthew 12, Matthew 16, Matthew 18, three of them. The speak of binding and loosing, the really big one is Matthew 12:29, where Jesus talks about first binding the strong man. And as we saw last week, that is a reference to the unique uh, messianic ministry of Christ and, and an analogy or an illustration of what he did, that he was able to come into the world and plunder Satan's captives by his miracles uh, and by his power over the demonic, which he demonstrated, and uh, in, in demonstrating that power of the demonic, demonstrated his messianic credentials that he is the Messiah as he claimed to be. Right. And uh, I, I texted you the other night, uh, right after we recorded that program, went home and uh, we happened to turn on TV in, and there was Jesse Duplantis, and he was saying, "Satan, I bind you." Uh, so that, you know, this is this is something that we hear all the time. So surely, Jim, as as common as this practice is, as as widely held as it is, surely there's examples of the apostles, of Jesus Himself. Um, uh, well, Jesus, Matthew twelve, of course, but surely we see an example in the. Don't the apostles? bind Satan? Don't we see this in the book of Acts somewhere? No reference to it anywhere in Scripture. No instruction. No examples. Uh, no no prescriptions in the epistles and no descriptions of this in the book of Acts. The the only place that you can really turn to where it actually speaks of binding the strong man is Matthew 12. And there, you don't even have Jesus saying, I bind you, Satan. Right. He has, he, he, all he is saying is, I have the power over Satan to plunder his house. And I first come in and take what is his, and so I have bound him. That is, Christ restricts his power and takes what Satan has. That, that, it's just an analogy. It's not even an, an instruction or a prescription of what to do or how to fight the devil. Right. And Scripture says that Satan prowls about like a roaring lion. He's not bound. The only time he'll ever be bound is Revelation 20. Right. 
right? Yep. Then he will. And that is yet future. That is yet future. Yes. Our apologies to our post-millennial friends. Post-millennial friends out there. But uh, okay. All right. Well, what we're going to talk about in this week's program is a uh, kind of a sister practice, kind of a twin practice to binding Satan, and that is rebuking, rebuking the devil. Satan. So if if we can't bind him, surely we can at least give him a verbal smackdown, right? Well, you, if, if you can't bind him, you don't want to be giving him a verbal smackdown, because the last thing you want is an angry devil uh, who has power to, to smack you down back. Right. Uh, rebuking Satan, this is another thing, you know, the, the, whole, the binding and rebuking is not something that you're just going to find in Word of Faith circles, or charismatic circles. This is the stuff that creeps into conservative uh, circles as well. Um, and, and you've probably heard this, I and mean, if you've ever, there, there's a famous quote by Robert Tilton where he binds the nicotine spirits and the demon <laughs> spirits of AIDS right. and sickness and illness, and I bind you, Satan. And, and you got to name, apparently you have to name the specific demons that you're binding, you know, the, the nicotine spirits and the alcohol spirits and the oppression spirits. And if you can name the name of the demon, uh, all the better. It kind of makes you wonder what nicotine spirits did before the invention of cigarettes. But exactly. anyway, you gotta you gotta bind the nicotine spirits. That's what uh, Robert Tilton did. But you'll find it uh, that that of course is still charismatic thinking and in charismatic circles. Robert Tilton. But you would find this even in uh, some conservative circles where you would hear people just you need to give the devil a verbal rebuke. Um, maybe you could like maybe a, you know this more than like I do. A censure but, or something. Yeah, a censure. I'm I'm trying to think if it was. Um, if it was K. Arthur or Beth Moore that I heard rebuking the devil, or you just give the devil a verbal rebuke, uh, it seems to me that one of them had said something like that. But anyway, that's the practice. It's, it's believed that we have the authority to address the devil and to verbally rebuke him, and that we need to verbally command the devil to do certain things. And of course, this is based upon the premise that you and I have authority in this realm the same authority that Christ exercised here, that we have the authority to exercise that same that that same power, okay. those same actions. We're just going to rebuke him, kind of give him a verbal slap down, let him know that he's out of his place, right. and he has no authority over us. So you'll hear people say, "I rebuke you, Satan, in the name of Jesus." Right. And the power of his blood, I rebuke you. So it, what is that? But when we rebuke him, is that just supposed to kind of send him stumbling on, backward on his heels? Yeah, a, you, you, a it makes you wonder or? whether he is sitting there thinking, well, I was going to tempt Jim, but he rebuked me, so now I can't do anything. Right. You know, or I thought I was great, but Jim just rebuked me, so now I realize I'm not as good as Jim is. Yeah. It, it seems kind of silly and, and bizarre, even on the face of it. Uh, let me give you a couple of examples of, of how people use or employ this tactic. Um, I just did a search for rebuking the devil, and I came across a, a, a blog from May 19, 2010, by a man named Britt Merrick. And he writes this, when we, quote, when we are called upon to deal with demons while we are on mission for Christ, we should deal with them the same way that Christ did. Jesus verbally commanded demons to leave, Mark 5, 8. Subsequently, we see the church in Acts following the same model, Acts 16, 16 to 18. The model that we have set before us is the verbal command and rebuke of demons, end quote. Now, he quotes two passages there. Of course, notice the premise. We should deal with them the same way that Christ did. And again, this goes back to something we discussed in a previous program. What is described in Scripture is not necessarily what is prescribed for us. So the fact that Jesus did this is not in and of itself merit for or, or, or um, warrant for you and I to do the exact same thing. Right. Jesus forgave sins, and that's not a warrant for us to forgive sins. He walked sins. on water and multiplied bread and fish. I mean, are we supposed to deal with world hunger the same way Jesus did? Right. Are we supposed to deal with sickness the same way Jesus did? This is the flaw of that. It is assumed that if Jesus did it, we should do it. 
Mm-hmm. And and that's that's you have to you you have to do more than assume that you have to prove that and it can't be proven. Jesus is an example to us, but it is he is held out as our example in conduct concerning uh, his morals, his ethics, his character, his compassion, his love, his sacrifice and service. Those are things that we ought to model. But rebuking demons, I mean, there's there's a there's a difference between me and Jesus, namely that he's God and I'm not. Right. Right, and then another example would be um, Richard Rumbrand. Well, well, I should I go back to Bill Merritt for just a second. Um, on that same blog post, in attempting to answer the question, uh, "Why does God ask us to speak to demons?" Merrick said, "Quote: There's nothing in Scripture that indicates that demons can hear our thoughts, read our minds, or be conscious of our inner dialogue. We must rebuke them by speaking out loud. Jesus gave us authority to cast out demons in His name." Mark sixteen seventeen. So notice that he he quotes Mark sixteen eleven, but that passage has to deal with a command and, and authority that Jesus gave to His disciples, and not necessarily something that he gave to all Christians for all time. And we'll look at when we can talk about whether we should be casting out demons or not. Um, that authority was was specifically and uniquely given to the disciples for the purpose of authenticating their message and ministry the same way that Jesus authenticated his message and ministry by exercising power and authority over the, the demonic realm. Um, you know, Merrick kind of misses the boat in what he assumes there. So another example of this of this uh, rebuking Satan is given by a man named Richard Rumbrand, and many of you will know uh, who he is because uh, he started the Voice of the Martyrs. He did great work in bringing the plight of the persecuted church to uh, the, uh, the awareness or the attention of, of Western Christians. But on this issue of of uh, binding and rebuking Satan, Rumbrand had it all wrong. Um, he believed that we have the authority to command and bind and rebuke devils and, and that we could speak to things, even inanimate objects, and that they must obey our command. So Rumbrand, in one of his um, special reports on the persecuted church, tells the story of an American pastor named Dick Eastman, who, who is in no doubt a charismatic. And uh, I got a little background with Dick Eastman, which I'll share with you as soon as I get done with uh, Richard Rumbrand. But... Uh, This is what Rembrandt writes. American pastor Dick Eastman was much burdened about a thick wall that divided the capital of a civilized nation, the Berlin Wall, erected by the communists. Knowing that it separated families and friends, he pleaded with God. It's written that if we pray, you should move a mountain, it will move. So many pray for this. Why don't you fulfill your promises? One night, Jesus replied, I never promised that I would move mountains if you pray. I said, if you, not me, say to this mountain, move, it will move. Matthew 17, 20. Don't come to me. Speak to the Berlin Wall. So then what uh, Pastor Eastman did is he went all the way to Berlin to convince the wall to crumble, and it, he didn't. So he complained to Jesus, who replied, quote, I did not say that you should alone should do it. Take a few believers with you. The pastor went all the way to Berlin a second time in the company of a few more believers and commanded the Berlin Wall to crumble. The group made a sign of the cross on the stone before which they had spoken. After a few days, the wall was no more. Germany was reunited. Many factors contributed to the destructive the destruction of the infamous wall, but who can deny that a word spoken to an inanimate object may play a decisive role? End quote. That, that's that's story story about Eastman. Well, Jim, I, I tell you, in, in reading this, I, I'm not I'm not really familiar with Wormbrandt and know a little bit about him, but um, and I'm not saying his overall theology is is word of faith, but what what we just read here, this is classic word of faith 
doctrine of positive confession. Yeah. Speaking to inanimate objects and just the, the creative, supposed creative power that we have in our words, that are supposedly in our words, in and of themselves, we can create our own reality, we can affect the material world around us. This this is... Um, I don't know. This is this is uh, foreign. This theology is foreign to the Word of God, but it's uh, very much at home in the metaphysical cult. So, uh, what say you? Well, I, I had a. I actually saw Dick Eastman in person. It was during my third year at Bible College. We went to a missions conference in Calgary, Alberta, which was about six hours, six and a half hours from the Bible College. So it was a, a, like a weekend field trip, and we went to this missions conference. And as it turns out, it was a, a, a group of charismatics that was putting it on. The, the music was very charismatic. The preaching was very charismatic. But Dick Eastman, who was who was billed as a, uh, a huge, influential, great speaker, we were all looking forward to Dick Eastman. And I didn't know anything about the guy other than that people that talked about him as being a, a great speaker and was going to be blessed by this. We showed up, and he told the exact same story at one of the plenary sessions in one of his keynote addresses. He told this exact same story just as Rumbrand recites it here. And I remember then thinking, this guy is absolutely off of his rocker. Uh, he thinks that him speaking to the Berlin Wall made the Berlin Wall crumble. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I don't... Do I believe that God in his providence and his sovereignty caused the Berlin Wall to come down? I do. Do I th- think he used Dick Eastman, who has this horrible theology, to do it? No, I don't. I think that Ronald Reagan had a little something to do with it. I think that Mikhail yeah. Gorbachev <laughs> had a little something to do with it. Margaret Thatcher had a little something to do with it. There were a lot of players in, in the Berlin Wall coming down. Uh, Dick Eastman is not the center, center focus of that. And for him to think that, that him going over there and laying hands and speaking to the wall caused that wall to cr- come, come crumbling down. And, and then he went on to sp- talk about how you, we should be doing the very same thing today. We need to go to certain places and speak to inanimate objects, and they will obey our commands. And it's just it's nonsense. Um, but playing devil's advocate, I mean, I wholeheartedly agree with you, but just to play devil's advocate, because maybe some of our, our listeners are wondering, well, well, what did Jesus mean? When he said, say to this mountain, be thou well, moved. He, he is, in, in that context, he is describing um, not our ability to command inanimate objects to uh, to do whatever we want them to do, as if we are the creators of the universe and can simply make everything obey our commands. But Jesus is there describing that when we pray in accordance with the will of God, we we are tapping into a power that God has, not that we have through our, our words, but a power that God has to to answer those prayers and to do what might honor and please him. Because in that context, I don't have it right in front of me, and I couldn't cite the verse number, but in that context, Jesus says, right after saying this, he says, whatever you pray, mm-hmm. you know, whatever you pray for, uh, in, in other words, whatever you ask in my name, when that's within my will, it will be done. Right. So the, the context of this is not not commanding things, not speaking to inanimate objects, but prayer. prayer. Yeah. And when we pray for things that are within God's will, They'll be done. And we ought not to think that there is anything that we can pray for that is too big that God cannot do it. Right. That, that's the point. No matter, we, if we pray, no matter how big it is, if that is God's will to do that for his own self-glorification, uh, he will do it. Right. Yeah. And, you know, one has to wonder the whole, the whole story with Dick Eastman. you got to wonder why, if Jesus was telling him this, why Dick Eastman didn't get it, why didn't Jesus make it more clear? Yeah. When he went over the first time the and first prayed time. for the Berlin Wall and it didn't come crumbling down and, and he came back and stymied as to why this would, would not happen like he wanted it to happen, why didn't he? Why didn't Jesus make it more clear? 
that he was supposed to take people with him. You know, he, this is the personal revelation. Yeah, save him trip. Think of all the ministry money that he wasted going over there right. the first time. Um, Jesus could have just made it more clear, and uh, but that's the problem with these personal revelations. You get right. these personal revelations, these these things the Lord spoke to me, and oh, I messed it up. Jesus apparently just is not a clear communicator because Dick didn't get the message the first time. Because in the in the text that he cites and that Jesus supposedly cited in this uh, conversation that Dick Eastman had with the risen Lord Christ, apparently Jesus says, I did not say you alone should do it. Take a few believers with you. Well, that's not in the text. Right. <laughs> you know, so, so we're getting new information. Yeah. Uh, apparently that passage was not clear enough on its own, so we need some further elaboration. That's right. Every listener out there should, should now know yeah. that that's what Mark... What's the passage he quotes? That, yeah. Matthew seventeen twenty. That that's what that speaks of now. That you yeah. you so, need to add that in the margin. Not, not you there. Yeah, yeah, not you alone, but you take a people with you. What he meant to say, was, right? Yeah, but uh, we, now we have Dick Eastman to thank for that clarification. Right, right. And of course, I mean the the, the dominoes just keep falling here. Then we have to wonder, well, well, what did all what did believers do in the in the 1900 plus years before Dick Eastman got this revelation. Yeah. You know, so apparently for for over 1900 years all the believers were operating under insufficient revelation of this until Christ gave it to Dick Eastman. Yeah. And and I would ask uh I would ask Reverend Rumbrand uh, this question, if this theology is true, why didn't you just simply speak to the prison doors while you spent so many years suffering persecution for the sake of Christ? Why didn't you speak to the prison doors and speak to the prison guards and speak to the the, the walls around the prison and the barbed wire? Why don't you just speak to them and make them disappear? Move them, right. cast them into the sea, and then you could walk right out of there. Yeah. So, you know, I don't, I'm not t- trying to make light of his sufferings, but I think he makes light of his sufferings by by promoting nonsense like this, which obviously did not work for him. Yeah, it, it didn't didn't work for him, and, and why don't we? Why don't all of the uh, people who believe in this doctrine, the the charismatics, word of faith, and you have Solid Reformation, and and even those non charismatics who would hold this view, why don't they uh, go over to Iran and get uh, Sayyid Abedini? Just need to speak to the prison walls out of prison, you know. Just yeah. So you, it comes back to what we said before: context. Context, 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 and even just a little common sense yeah. goes a long way in clearing, clearing a lot of this stuff up. Another example of that, and one we've we've spoken of uh, before, Mark Bubeck, he tells the story of his daughter who was ill and she was demonically oppressed. And so he, of course, had this power encounter with the, the demons and commanded them to manifest themselves in the name of Jesus and by the power of his blood. And, and then he gives them these commands to speak clearly. I command you to speak clearly and to name yourself and all your subordinates and all the demons who are under your charge. And, and he has this elaborate uh, description of this whole power encounter with the demonic where he finally gets the the names and identities of these demons. And, of course, he believes them, believes the testimony of demons, because apparently they think that if you right. command demons in the name of Jesus to tell you the truth, they have to tell you the truth, you have to tell you because that, yeah. you've told them in the name of Jesus. And so since there's power in that name and there's power in the blood, we can use the name in the blood to... to cast an incantation over the demonic realm and now they are messengers of the truth because right. we told them to be yeah. messengers of the truth. So, But then in, in this whole power encounter, of course, he rebukes the devil and rebukes these demons and rebukes the demon of nausea and the, the demon of cramps and the, the demon of headaches or whatever it was that was oppressing his daughter. And uh, so that's that's just indicative of that whole theology. I, I, I command you to do this, Satan, your demons. I command these demons to tell me this. I command these demons to do that, and I rebuke the devil. Right. And there's no, there's no example of that in Scripture. 
No. In fact, it's the mark of a false teacher. It, okay. Well, since you brought that up, don't elaborate on that. There, I mean. there are two passages which are key. Both of them are in books written uh, concerning false teachers and false teaching. Second Peter 2, 9 through 13. Uh, Peter says, The Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment, and especially those who indulge the flesh. And so now he's talking about these corrupt false teachers, those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Daring, self-willed, they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. Whereas angels who are greater in might and power do not bring a reviling judgment against them before the Lord. But these, the false teachers, like unreasoning animals, born as creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed, suffering wrong as the wages of doing wrong. So there Peter gives one of the characteristics of a false teacher is a man who does not respect angelic authorities, realizing that he is, he is like a beast. He is a created um, human being, a person of flesh, far less, far less powerful and far less uh, influential than a demonic, even a demonic angelic being, and yet he reviles these angelic authorities, not even realizing that the angels themselves do not revile angelic authorities, the demons. Right. The good angels do not stand around in the heavenlies rebuking and reviling and speaking evil against the demons. They are at war with one another. There is a battle going on in the heavenly realm, but it's not a verbal battle of, I rebuke you, oh yeah, well, I rebuke you times ten. Oh yeah, well, I rebuke you infinity. It's not this triple dog dairy. It's not this verbal rebuking back and forth. Even the, the holy angels do not bring reviling accusations against the demons. Right. But yet, these unreasoning false teachers, they will rebuke and revile and speak evil and mock. Um, you, you've seen the clips of Jesse DePlantis. You can speak to that, mocking oh, the yeah. devil the way he does. Oh, yeah. Rod Parsley, uh, I've, I can't tell you how many times I've seen him uh, rebuking Satan, binding Satan, uh, commanding angels to go and do his bidding. I was, I was actually at a, a service, if you can even call it that at his church one time and he he told everybody that uh, we each have our own harvest angels and we are supposed to command our harvest angels to go and collect a harvest uh, collect a harvest and bring it into us for financial gain and all this I mean it's just it's 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 blasphemous but Jim this is when you when you really read and for the for those of you who are listening of course you're listening second <laughs> second Peter chapter 2 the the scripture reference here, Second Peter chapter two. I want you to look at this. Second Peter chapter two, nine through thirteen. This is a sobering mm-hmm. passage of scripture. I mean, we you know we have a little fun with the absurdity of it, but but Peter, under the inspiration of God's Holy Spirit, writes of these people, and he call, calls them, refers to them as unreasoning animals. Uh, creatures of instinct to be captured and killed, reviling where they have no knowledge. And then he says, will in the destruction of those creatures also be destroyed. And so, quite clearly, people who engage in this kind of behavior, now we're not talking about somebody who is a a brand new Christian, uh, doesn't have a great deal of Bible knowledge, but somebody who has read the Scripture, somebody who has studied, and somebody who knowingly and willingly engages in this kind of behavior over an extended period of time, this would seem to 
really call into question mm-hmm. their salvation. I mean, it's pretty clear they they will be destroyed. You could have you could have Christians who ignorantly think that they have been given this power. I mean, I did this for for a couple of years. You know, they ignorantly think that they've been given this power and that this is the way they deal with temptation. This is the way they deal with demonic attack or resistance or a bad day. Mm-hmm. They're just going to rebuke the devil and then he's supposed to run fleeing because we've rebuked him. But they're not doing it because they themselves are daring and self-willed and trying to indulge their corrupt desires. That's the false teacher. Right. They might Christians might do this in ignorance, not understanding. They don't have this authority that they've been told by the false teacher that they have. And, and so they engage in this practice. But here is the warning that this is the mark of men who are like dumb dogs, just fit to be destroyed. Right. They're just like animals. They should be led to the slaughter. They're unreasoning and... Um, you know, Peter says they are daring and self-willed, and they do not tremble when they revile angelic majesties. If that doesn't describe um, some of these men that we've been talking about, as well as Jesse Duplantis, then, then there's no passage of Scripture that does. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I would say that, um, you know, given that your own experience with this, how, how God has delivered you out of this, that is... In, in discussing this, uh, one of the marks of a genuine believer is that, that a genuine believer can be in doctrinal error uh, to one degree or another. I mean, Peter was, the Apostle Peter was, was in, was in serious doctrinal error when he didn't think the gospel should be taken to the Gentiles. But when he was confronted with the truth, he mm-hmm. he bent the knee. Yeah. And and that is that is one of the marks of a believer uh, in in uh, your uh, early years of of being a Christian. You had erroneous views on this. I did too. Uh, you had erroneous views on this. But when when you saw the truth from God's word, when you saw it clearly, you bent the knee to it. Mm-hmm. And so so these people who remain obstinate, who who uh, bristle at the truth, you know that's that's not a good sign. So, but these are these are not light. Not light matters that we're dealing with. No, the second one is Jude eight and ten, uh, eight through ten. Uh, Jude writes, "Yet in the same way, these men also by dreaming defile the flesh and reject authority, and revile angelic majesties." And it uses almost the same language that Peter uses right. about rejecting authority and reviling angelic majesties. And then Jude gives us a, a little illustration, a historical illustration. And he says, But Michael the archangel, when he disputed with the devil and argued about the body of Moses, did not dare pronounce against him a railing judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these men revile the things which they do not understand and the things which they know by instinct, like unreasoning animals. By these things they are destroyed. Almost the same language, uh, almost the same example. But but here, uh, Jude gives an historical illustration of something that happened of the devil and uh, Michael arguing over the body of Moses. Not something we read about in Deuteronomy or anywhere else in Scripture, but we have an example of it. We have it given here in Jude. And if it weren't for Jude, we wouldn't know anything about this. But Michael didn't say, I rebuke you, Satan. But he said, the Lord rebuke you. And and Jude there is arguing, if if Michael would not do this, who do these false teachers think that they are, that right. they are willing to do this? Right. Exactly. And that, that is such a telling text of Scripture. All these people going around willy-nilly and, and rebuking Satan and, and, and talking to Satan. You know, as I think MacArthur gave the, uh, he talked about it one time when he was in a, a church service of some fashion. I don't remember where it was, but um, the, the guy got up and he started praying and he, and he started talking to Satan like, I rebuke you, Satan. And MacArthur said he nearly fell out of his chair. Like, <laughs> what, what are you doing? To, why are we talking to Satan? You know, Michael, the archangel, 
would not do this. Right. So who in the world do we think we are? Right. So, um, yeah, very telling. So, uh, Jim, as we begin to, to wrap up, what are, what, are some, what are some practical issues, practical problems uh, as we kind of think about what we've discussed in this program? Well, once again, we don't have, in uh, concerning this issue of rebuking Satan, we don't have a single command to do this in the New Testament. There's nothing in the epistles that says this is how you deal with Satan. We're told to stand. We're told to stand humbly. We're told to resist the devil, and he will flee, but never to rebuke the devil. And in 1 Peter 5 and James 5, those passages that deal with how we deal with the Satan, uh, deal with the devil, they do not tell us that we are to rebuke the devil or to, to, to push him back by verbally commanding him to do certain things. Further, we don't have a single example of it anywhere in the New Testament. You don't have an example of, of uh, Jesus doing this. We don't have an example. Uh, you, you would think that Jesus would do this in his temptation. Right. That the devil came to him and that Jesus would have just simply said, I rebuke you, Satan. Now, of all the men who have ever lived, Jesus had the authority to do this. Right. But that's not how he handled the devil's attack. That's not how he handled the temptation. He simply quoted scripture and obeyed the Father in the temptation. He didn't rebuke the devil. The only examples that we have of rebuking devils are both negative. It's Peter and Jude. And we're actually told this is the mark of a false teacher, not the mark of a man who is um, adept at handling spiritual attack. Right. These are false teachers. Yeah. And the whole issue of taking uh, of rebuking the devil takes our eyes off the Lord. We should be addressing the Lord in prayer, never the devil in prayer. Um, and we are n- we're never told to do this. In fact, the, the 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 way that we are to handle this devil is to resist him and to stand. That's right. that's the prescription we're given. To do otherwise is to uh, go off and, and use a tool or a tactic that the Lord has not given us to use. It is to presume authority that He has not given us, and right. it is to engage in practices that He has actually told us is is not healthy. It, it is the sign of a false teacher who does not obey Scripture. Yeah. Excellent, Jim. Good word. And again, uh, overall, you know that this is an, another reason why we've got to have a good hermeneutic. We've got to have a good approach to reading and interpreting Scripture. What is the Bible being? descriptive or prescriptive and there, there's a big big difference between those two and so uh so uh let's let's keep it in context so we can rightly know god's word and when we're when our knowledge of god is deepened when we understand him when we worship him in spirit and in truth then uh, that enables our love for god to be deepened we will know him as he has revealed himself in scripture not as how we would like him to be or not how we think he ought to be but as he has revealed himself so Good word. Now, Jim, uh, looking forward to next week, we are going to talk about another common um, misconception of spiritual warfare. So give us a little preview. Yeah, this, the next week we're going to talk about a practice called spiritual mapping. Um, you may not know it by that title. Sometimes it's called strategic level spiritual warfare. Sometimes you've heard to this referred to, uh, heard to uh, territorial spirits referred to. And we're going to talk about uh, how they find out about ter- ter- territorial spirits and how uh, what this practice is and why it is very, very dangerous. All right, good deal. Dear ones, thank you very much for listening, and I hope you're enjoying this series, and I hope you're taking notes because this is good practical stuff. Now, uh, Jim, as we said, you have written a book on this, and the title of the book is Truth or Territory, A Biblical Approach to Spiritual Warfare. So way more information in the book than what we're able to go over here. And uh, again, where can people get the book? You can get the book at truthorterritory.com. Um, and all the proceeds of the book go to um, finishing up a church building uh, of the church that I pastor, Kootenai Community Church. All right. 
Well, dear ones, thank you. And until our next time together, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.